I suppose it's possible. There's a chance, very small chance. You could bring your kid back out of this room. Well, tell me how I can do it. Well, sometimes when you start getting objects together, weird things happen. New things, new properties, totally unpredictable. Take the watch. Useless, right? The watch? Wristwatch. Cooks eggs. Nothing else, just eggs. Put an egg in the middle, hard boils it. I don't know how somebody figured that out, but they did. Anyway, nobody used to care much about the watch until one day somebody found out that if you put the watch and the knife together, you get a kind of telepathy. So you're saying that if I find the right object and I use it with the key... I don't know, Joe. It's a million to one. I'll take it. Whatever you do, don't lose the key. If you lose it, you'll never get her back. Happy New Year, and welcome back to Hooing Company. I'm Brent. And I'm Drew. It's New Year's Eve, and as everyone stays up, we're putting Season 3 of Hooing Company to bed. Our guest this month is Gallifrey Public Radio host, Keir Hansen. We talk Doctor Who, why the Doctor isn't the only one running, and the power of Phanthropy. Then we unlock the door and step into Keir's Pick of the Month, the mind-bending 2006 Sci-Fi Channel miniseries, The Lost Room. But before we get to our final guest of the decade, we want to thank all of the amazing guests who took time to talk with us in 2019. Ashford Wright, Jane Slavin, Tyne Gooden, Richard Franklin, Tammy Johnson, my godson Simon, Douglas McKinnon, David Huey, John Davey, Tom Dickinson, Helen Goldwyn, Riley Silverman, Louise Jameson, and Eric Wilinski. Thank you all so much. And thank you to our listeners we have big plans for 2020, so stay tuned. Our final guest of 2019 is coming up right after this. So who are you? Jennifer Bloom. One of the dead men in the pawn shop, Marco Cordova. I knew him. He was my second. My partner. Former partner. He went rogue about six months ago. He took the key. Joe, if I wanted, I could have killed you the moment you walked in here. But I didn't. That's not what we're about. Rule number one, we don't kill. Ever. And who's we? We're called the Legion. We're trying to get rid of the objects. For good. All of them. We track the owners. Make contact, 
Ask them to give us their objects. Join our cause. That ever work? I've had people beg me. Tell me. Since you found the key, has your life gotten better? Or worse? My daughter went into the room. And I need the key to bring her back. For our final guest of season three, and of the decade, we've invited someone who I first met when I misread my press sheet at LI Who and showed up at their guest interview thinking it was mine. He's a top-notch host, a giving fan, and a first-rate human being. Keir Hansen, welcome to Who and Company. Thank you very much for having me, gentlemen. I really appreciate this. Yeah. Yeah. It's December. <laughs> I like the fact that I get some sort of a tee up that says I'm going to be closing out the decade. There's no pressure or anything. That's, that's absolutely Sounds ominous. Well, you know, listen, we figured in the inevitable destruction, the heat death of the universe, uh, why not? Keir Hansen. Sure. <laughs> Apropos. Uh, so for those of you still alive uh, after to hear this message, no, I just ignore that one completely. So let's chat Doctor Who. Normally, when we have a, a guest on, we'll talk about them themselves. But there's so much. Uh, I know I know you through Do- Doctor Who. Like I, like I know all of our guests through Doctor Who. Um, mm-hmm. But like it feels like every facet. Every time I've like we have these conversations, they, they stretch far and beyond. But Doctor Who is always at the center of this. And so I just want to know, like right off the bat, like when did you first start watching Doctor Who, uh, and uh, why did you stick with it? Two sort of unrelated questions. Um, I think we've probably had this conversation in some facet or another on a on a shared panel somewhere along the way. Probably, uh, but first exposure to Doctor Who was definitely not my first watching with any earnest. Oh, uh, and that was tell. because it, yeah, well, it was childhood. This is the. Uh, uh, mid-1980s or so. In fact, if I were to do the mental math, it's kind of early in the morning and the coffee hasn't kicked in. But mm-hmm. uh, I do, I could tell you this much. Second grade, over at my friend Doug Herbeck's house. I will never forget it. I will never forget the uh, the very um, 70s carryover design to the lay of his uh, family room and the wood paneling and the orange shag carpet and sitting there and waiting for him to um, eagerly show me the Star Trek episode that he knew was going to be coming on in roughly 40 minutes or so. Um, had his, you know, UHF dial all you know, set set to go on the television set. But we knew it was going to be a little while before it started. And he said, well, there's another show that me and my dad watch. And we can check that out. That's starting over on the, on the PBS station in a minute or two. And so he tuned it into... I, I can't even tell you. Well, I, I actually can tell you. It was probably from a uh, season 15 Tom Baker episode, somewhere mid story, because it came in with absolutely no context whatsoever. And I had no idea what I was seeing. Um, but I knew a couple of you know basic tenets. It was British, therefore it must be smart. Right. <laughs> um, and, and there were a lot of people in danger. And there was someone who was finding the whole thing funny finding the danger humorous, and that piqued my interest. But problem being, um, as was the case with a lot of uh, PBS uh, programming uh, directorial decisions during the 1980s, it was really erratic and often you know, non-sequential by any fashion. So trying to find the completion of the story, same bat time, same bat channel the next week or next two weeks, 
was something entirely different. So it, it kind of it, it it frustrated me into not really sticking with it for for very long. Plus, second graders, you know, their attention span is near nil. So, um, so it was a little while before I started seeing opportunities to find what I came to learn in the next couple of years was a show called Doctor Who uh, that was not made here in the U.S. of A. And thankfully, by the time you get around towards the uh, the late '80s, I was seeing VHS sets showing up on library shelves. And that was what allowed me to start tapping into it. Again, a complete noob, really not knowing any of the sequencing to the program. Uh, so I was grabbing Davison series, and then I was grabbing, you know, um, uh, a small compendium of Pertwee stories, and really having to suss it out on my own really poorly um, without the advent of uh, those interwebs to, to help me understand this this uh this confusion that i was taking in with the story i enjoyed the stories but i really didn't understand the bigger picture so it wasn't until what what, what did we get it 2006 before we got the uh the revived series here stateside that i could really start to go through it in some sort of order um, gotcha saw the 96 um a pilot film live time uh and that helped a little bit <laughs> but um, we know that 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 harmed as much as it helped to a certain degree. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, so I never, I don't think I've ever watched Doctor Who on VHS. Does, do the VHS tapes have kind of a, um, does it reference like the third Doctor? Or is it just, does it, is all, all Doctors Doctor Who, all actors Doctor Who on those? I, th- if I remember correctly, um, because a lot of times they would either be packaged as, you know, as originally purchased or acquired or donated to the libraries or whether it was rebundled. <laughs> and there were times when you would end up getting the, the clear VHS case that had something that somebody printed off on the copier and cut to fit inside the box, just <laughs> to give you an idea what you're saying. Right. So, I mean, they, they were just, it was labeled as the, you know, as Doctor Who and either the season, uh, or the, the relevant years. And it didn't have any sort of a, as far as I remember, any sort of a back packaging that said, you know, the the Davison era or the Pertwee years or anything of that sort. It was typically just a chunk of stories mm-hmm. uh, that fell within the season. So, and I would take them as I could find them, because at the time I had the accessibility to be able to hop to hop around to a couple of adjacent town libraries, you know, within the within the county or so um, here in Connecticut. Uh, so you know, our towns aren't terribly large. You can pretty much walk around to a few of them. Um, and just grab what you could find. So it, it was really slapdash. Did you have a favorite doctor? Uh, I think Baker really stuck with me because um, that was what originally piqued my interest in the first place. The fact that you had a storyline that, um, as is indicative of a lot of the classics, and we're starting to see this come around now too with, the, with some of the modern storytelling, that you get thrust into the midst of something. You, know, you either fall into the middle of a very frenetic conversation or you, you get dropped into the middle of a battle sequence or something of that sort. And there's some people that are very distraught over things. And it may be 10, 15, 20 minutes in some cases or in the, in the classic era, maybe the second episode before you really start to see what the doctor and, uh, and their companion or companions are up to. So it's, it's a guessing game. And I liked that challenge. And that was particularly strong in you know season 15 16 or so um, you know getting into ramana and the, the whole key to time series and such um, so that was i liked the uh i definitely liked the 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 subtlety to the humor the fact that the humor was was very uh, offset 
there were uh, icebreaker moments or ones to be tension breakers where the madness of, of Baker's fourth doctor really undercut the, uh, the severity of somebody that was trying to dress him down and he would grin back and give them some non sequitur that really, you know, uh, uh, tipped them on their heels. And I, I love that. That was something I was not familiar with seeing with any kind of American programming at the time. So it kind of, it, it endeared itself to me. And then later as I get into, you know, later into grade school and things, it really, I think to a certain degree, guided where my interests lie with things like pursuing different books. I, I latched on to Douglas Adams by fourth grade and things of that sort. That just really, that really set a tone for the kind of content that I wanted to take in. So I, I have to credit that. Did you, um, speaking of Douglas Adams, uh, were you aware that Douglas Adams had written Doctor Who? Uh, did I had any of his no episodes? clue at the time. Yeah. It was well, obviously. I mean, you you have some exposure to it, um, you know, by by name, title in in, uh, in season fifteen. But it was an, uh, and then obviously the uh, the the David Agnew kind of a uh, of interjection that he had from an editing perspective. But I never connected them sure. at all. Um, yeah, it wasn't until well into my um, my new who experiences that the, the penny finally dropped, and I thought, oh, okay, that makes a lot more sense now. Okay, got it. <laughs> Yeah, I actually, I, I think after Douglas Adams passed away and I was reading one of his biographies and they had mentioned that he had written and edited, uh, done some editing uh, on Doctor Who. I was like, that sounds really cool. I should I should check this Doctor Who out. I mean, I, at that point in time, I'd only seen the 96 movie. So okay, so it was a, an early connection. And I'm just re- remembering that now too. I remember thinking, yeah, I got to start watching Doctor Who, which I, of course I didn't until the, the, the new series came out. I'm sure we've we've all had these conversations uh, with Whovians to talk about what their entry points are, and it's so funny to see that there there is never any kind of a, a of a, a common a common point for the needle on the record. I know just as many people who have either uh, wandered in from the comic um, uh, medium or uh, or or uh, maybe Torchwood, you know, around 2007 or so. Um, thank you, Netflix, for for at one time really being really on point about their recommendation processes, because that was something that helped exponentially in getting people to say, no, you know, you should really look into this. You know, if, if Dr. Who seems a little challenging for you at the moment, or if it seems a little disjointed or a little too, I don't know, I wouldn't say cerebral, but if it just isn't your jam and you like things that are a little more action, fighty, snarky, sexy, watch Torchwood. And then I'll, you know, that'll set a little baseline I'll bring in. So it, we've, we've had all of those opportunities. And especially as you mentioned with, um, with Adams, that gives you something where you say, all right, well, if you like that style, if you like that, that sort of a tipped perspective view of the, of the universe and going at it with a, with a little bit of a smirk and a, and, and some, and a bucket full of snark, this is something else that he's worked on that, that might carry nicely for you. And then you, you know, hand them, Doctor Romana running around Paris with one of the greatest stories ever told, and there, there you go. City of Death is done. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. It's it's one of those that I uh, that one in particular I, I show folks not a, not as a first classic. Like if they've never gotten a chance to watch Classic Who before, I, I don't show mm. them that one because it's like showing someone Blink. They're not all like that. Uh, that's not indicative of a of a uh, of what they can expect from from Doctor Who, mm-hmm. but it is. Mm-hmm. It, is a, it is a cool experience, but if they are, you know, Douglas Adams fans like I was and am, uh, it's not a bad way of going into it. Now, right. um, I, I alluded to this in, in your introduction. Um, we we both have, uh, well, you currently are, and I have been uh, a part of podcasts 
about Doctor Who with the same initials, uh, which did cause some confusion uh, only on it my did. part. You were never you <laughs> you were never you never had a problem with it. Uh, but I remember embarrassing myself at least two years in a row with misreading my my uh, my call sheet for interviews uh, and going, "No, I'm G- GPR," and like you you very calmly going, "No, actually, Drew, yours says Drew on it. We're GPR." <laughs> There's a whole bunch of us, uh, of course, you, as Galfrey Public Radio. Um, how did that get started? Uh, that was actually uh, the the brainchild of uh, my co-host and, and originator, Jay Witten. Uh, he wanted to have something that took uh, took a took a walk through the Hooniverse with a with a more of a um, an informational and positive slant. Because even at the time that it was in its inception back ooh, six or seven years ago, I'll, I'll do math later, um, was something where you could already tell that the, the fan base based on uh, blogs and, and uh, video takes and such that people were getting very ornery about the content, about um, this was right around the time of a, a change of showrunner. And it was getting a little nasty, and Jay wanted to put something a little bit more positive out into the uh, into the landscape, and wanted to to grab some folks that that sort of fell across the spectrum. He was a new Whovian that, uh, well, similar in regards to to my experience, had had some exposure to classic Who, but didn't really follow it in earnest. Um, him probably less so because he didn't have the same opportunities being a Texan to have. Um, library access and things that, that would carry that sort of opportunity for consumption on the shelf. So I, I guess maybe it was just the advantage of where I was at the time. Um, but he also wanted to make sure that he had somebody who was uh, completely a uh, babe in the woods, you know, catching it for the first time and had a, a, a friend of his that he had been doing some some entertainment and, uh, and podcast reactions with uh, Samantha. And she came in and was experiencing it for the absolute first time from day one, from Rose. And they had a blast with it. They brought me on very shortly thereafter. Um, and we had a ton of fun with it and realized that you could do the same sort of, um, of positive lens on the content, regardless of whether or not you actually liked the content. There were things that you could see not only in in a matter of of parsing a story or a performance or an arc and saying, you know what, there are, there are some gems in here. You know, as a whole, maybe it's not my cup of tea, but there are some things in here you can really appreciate. Or you could look at it and say, this isn't my personal, you know, bowl of chili, but knowing the diversity and the and the wide range of fanaticism about the program and the fact that some people really latch on to one aspect or another. They're big Murray Gold fans, and they love it when his score gets larger than life and becomes a character in and of itself in the story. Okay, well, I can say, I can point at a story and say, you know what, from the plot development, wasn't really something that worked for me, but but Gold was on point hmm. through this entire story. So I know that my, my score fanatics are going to eat this one for lunch and have it for leftovers. So it's, it's a, that has become our zeitgeist, and we've had a ton of fun with it because I think a lot of people appreciate going at this complicated, at times frustrating program uh, and all of the periphery, the the comics, the novelizations and everything that goes along and say, you know what? It's not me. It's not for me, but it may be for you or it may be for the person standing behind you or that guy walking in the door over there. 
uh, and and it has that it has the opportunity it has had the opportunity to experiment with itself so much experimentation and change built into the the dna of the program that says everybody's going to find something right so just revel in the fact that somebody out there is really loving it well for those who haven't heard Gallifrey public radio um it's based is a review show correct uh and- yes uh, when the when especially when we're during our downtimes, um, uh-huh. how do you pick those stories? Is it just random, or do you go in order? We had some some periods where we went at it with some randomness, or whether there was maybe some there was a conversation going on within the fandom that wasn't necessarily related to a story, but it was causing some wrinkles, and we would actually take apart the, the you know whatever the the core tenets were of that discussion slash argument. Um, but we found that we were having more fun treating it a little bit lighter so even if we weren't doing reviews and we do our reviews with some sort of specific sequence we we do things on about a three-week rotation we're a weekly cast but if week a is a uh, chronological order classic story we do a classic rewatch then the following week we will be reviewing something else in sequence usually uh, the spinoffs we're we're doing torchwood right now we're probably going to pick up once we, if we survive getting through Children of Earth, <laughs> and uh, and and then we will we will flip a coin essentially, or maybe turn it over to the listeners to decide whether or not we're going to discuss the the Americanized uh, season four. Um, then we're going to pick up on the Sarah Jane adventures, which I'm highly looking forward to. But on that third week, that week C, um, during the break periods when we don't have new Whovian content to absorb on a weekly basis, we've decided just recently uh, we we've been doing games. You know, we'll play things that are sort of takes on on, on game shows and flip them into a uh, into a Whovian bent, uh, whether it be something that is sort of improv based or whether we're playing like a version of password kind of thing or or what have you. And we've had a ton of fun with that. But um, right now we are starting into something uh, which we're kind of calling the worthwhile series. Um, and it's taking it, Drew. This is going to sound really familiar, based on you know the, this the, the seed for this idea came from the panel that we had just recently shared together, where we were talking about the bottom of the barrel, yeah. really, um, or at least programs or episodes that had received the uh, the the largest drubbing uh, from viewers and, and and reactors alike. And then we just go at it and say, you know what, from a from a, a storyline perspective, here are a couple of things that you can take out of this that you could you personally might appreciate. Maybe we do or don't, but they're there. Uh, a couple things from the performances and a couple things from the technical aspects, you know, in the mm. execution of the program. Um, and then we sort of, we look at the the balance of the books at the, at the end of the conversation and say, well, you know, this still may not be my personal favorite story. And it may be not one that I would ever recommend to someone to sit down and watch. You have to see the curse of the black spot. You have to see it. But we could say, you know what, if it's on, or as uh, my co-host Haley likes to say, if you're doing laundry, <laughs> and it's on for the corner. That's her reference point. Is always doing laundry. If yeah. it's, if it's something you'll allow to stay on while you're folding sheets, um, then then it's a uh, then it can't be that bad. So I'm organizing because we just moved into a new house and everything was in boxes and I'm taking stuff out and and I've decided that I don't need as much physical media as mm-hmm. I've had in the past. But I am organizing all of our DVDs and uh, as I'm putting them on the shelves, there's actually an entire shelf just for laundry. What we call laundry movies. Uh, ones that that my wife can like you know if, if there's nothing better on we can just put that now now with the advent of streaming laundry movies have become a little less uh, prevalent mm-hmm. because you know you could there's always something streaming that you could put on like you know someone's True. always going to be baking something or uh forging something and we could just you know put that on instead but 
I get the I get the laundry reference. Yeah. Speaking of uh, of kind of our conversations and our panels and our conventions, I, I love doing panels with you. It's it's always I always feel like I learn something whenever you and I are on a on a panel hmm. together, and I and I, I feel like sometimes our moderators get frustrated because we moderate ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> like we, I know there's been more than one occasion where like we've actually stopped turning to the audience and actually just turned to each other. I think we did a religion in Doctor Who panel that just completely right. went off the rails of I think what the yeah. intention was. You know it's you know it's bad when we've turned our chairs towards each other right. and we're not actually yeah yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a public conversation. Um <laughs> but on this last convention at the most recent Long Island production, I guess we're calling it an unearthly convention. Um we had a nice conversation about a project that's near and dear to you, which is the the Fandom Running Club. Uh mm-hmm. could you tell us a little bit more about that and your involvement? Well, right. Uh, this actually, I'll, I'll pull it up uh, one level higher on the on the umbrella there. Uh, Fandom Running Club is one of uh, of a series, uh, a set of fanthropy running clubs, and I'll explain that term in a second. They are um, virtual running communities online that rally around some aspect of a fandom that is their thematic motivation to go out and do some physical exercise under the premise that they are registering for these events and and completing some some uh, walking or jogging or running or cycling or swimming some 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 sort of a physical exertion uh, as part of an event that raises funds for a charity specific to that event so we've called these things fanthropy as the um, as the amalgam of fandom and philanthropy because you're actually participating in a fundraising event that encourages you through your fanatical interests to do something good for yourself at the same time. Um, so the premise becomes we launch an event that is themed around Doctor Who in some fashion. We have an entire Whovian running club. We have another one for Harry Potter fans that is the Potterhead running club and so on. The event gets launched. It has a, a medal, you know, a, a finisher's medal that you receive that we ship out to you. Your registration for that event is your donation to that event's charity partner. So you're actually, you're making the donation and you're getting the medal as a sort of a thank you for participation and hopefully feeling encouraged to go out and do the distance associated with that event, whether it be three miles or a 5K or a 10K or some intermediate distance in between that fits the joke of the, of the theme. So we've been doing this now for a little over five years. Uh, we have hosted about 60 some odd events uh, going back to uh, mid-2014. And to date, we have donated $2.8 million to about 60 charities around the world. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's That's a, impressive. It's, it's the power of fandom. It really, you think about somebody that gets, you know, the, whatever you want to call your, your personal definition of geek. Somebody, if a geek is somebody who doesn't just appreciate something, they get fully immersed in it. They want to research everything about it. They, they revel in the minutiae. Um, and they, they, they will never you know, pass up a conversation about it. It becomes all-encompassing to them. We try to channel that towards something altruistic. And, and the numbers really bear that out. Um, it's, the, it's the involvement where of the you know, couple of thousand people that may register for an event, maybe uh, a full third of them are doing so because they're looking for the encouragement to go out and uh, and do a 5K on their treadmill, or they want to go hike in the woods and and do their first 10K that they've ever done in their lives, or something of that sort. Or maybe they're 
another third of the, those participants are in it because of the theme of the event. They really want the medal that has the uh, uh, that has the the doors to seventy six Totters Lane that open to to show a TARDIS within on your metal. Like the metal literally has little opening doors on it and such. We did a Totters Lane seven point six k last year, um, or that remaining third gets involved because the charity partner that is receiving the benefits um, and, the, and the majority proceeds from each of these events is something that calls to them personally, whether it be some sort of an animal rescue effort uh, or um, adoption of children in mainland China who, uh, who have Down syndrome or uh, an organization that is a collective of 3D printing engineers who run off 3D hands for kids who have lost them in war-torn countries. Uh, which is a group called Enabling the Future. Um, we found some incredible groups that we never knew existed, but because we have 78,000 active participants around the world that, that take part in our events, they are the ones who nominate or bring to our attention um, nonprofit organizations that we assess and say, is it a good fit for the Potterheads? Is it a good fit for the Whovians? Is it a good fit for you know, my, my Stranger Things fans or my Supernatural fans or what have you? So... We try to connect the, the charity partner to the theme of the event in some fashion so that um, – I'm trying to think of a good example here. Oh, well, the uh, Enabling the Future, the group Enable, um, is uh, obviously working with prosthetics, and we theme that around handles. Right. So ha- handles being a piece of a Cyberman. Um, and it actually was one of our most popular events. Uh, and again, p- some people wanted the medal. Some people just loved this organization and hearing the stories uh, from these kids who were saying that as a result of having this 3D printed hand, I can hold my bear and, 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 and hug it goodnight uh, with both hands. I, you know, it's, it's, it, this is an organization we may have never heard about unless we had tens of thousands of people out there saying, have you heard of? Would you look into how about considering? So it's a, it's a great collective. Well, how would someone become involved in that? Is there a website they can go to? Or? Yeah, the, the websites are out there for all of the various organizations. The, the easiest way to, to sort of see them all under one umbrella is to go to fanthropy.org. So F-A-N-T-H-R-O-P-Y, fanthropy.org. And there you'll see the basic description of what a virtual run is and the different running clubs that are under that umbrella that, that might cater to your particular fan interest. Um, they all function roughly the same way as far as how long events are available for, um, how we choose who the charity partners are. All our financials are there because we're a 501c3 nonprofit, so we want to make sure everything is absolutely transparent down to the penny. Um, yeah, and then you can also see the results of events we've held in the past, the organizations that we've supported, and the and the amounts that they've received. So, so how important is running for you personally? Um, well, r- r- distance running is kind of my comfort level because that's something that I'll do partially for personal health, but also it's kind of therapeutic for me because when you're out there running for more than 20, 30 minutes or so, your your brain just kind of at some point everything else sort of sloughs away. And it leaves you just thinking about you know, breathe in, breathe out, left foot, right foot. <laughs> and it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a meditative sort of thing for me personally. Um, there will be a certain times where that meditation breaks down and it's my calf, my ankle, my knee, my toe, my, you know, and, and those things creep in. But by and large, it's really about, um, uh, for me personally, it's, it's, the, it's the opportunity to sort of clear my head. 
Um, the good thing that I found about these virtual running events is that it breaks down the barriers to anybody who doesn't really want to be a runner. That's fine. If you're a, if you're a swimmer, you can actually participate in these. If you're a cyclist, you could participate in these. We have um, martial artists and dancers and things that are completing these events by looking at it as uh, the amount of exertion. So if it's a 5K uh, event of some sort and the medal associated with it, and they'll say, well, I'm a swimmer though. I'm, I'm not going to swim five kilometers. My lungs will explode. <laughs> but, but they'll ask an, uh, a fledgling runner, how long does it take you to run a 5K? And they'll say, oh, maybe 30, 35 minutes or something like that. And they'll say, okay, I'll go, I'll go do my, uh, my swimming laps and things for, for 35 minutes and call that, you know, call that my 5K, whatever that distance nets to. It doesn't really matter. It's really about going out and just doing something. Right. So it takes, the, it takes the barrier of your level of fitness out of it because you can do it at whatever pace you choose or whatever method. It takes the location out of it so that instead of having to do something like the town Santa trot or something of that sort that happens and you have to be at a specific place at a specific time, you just you know, go, like I said, you can hike in the woods or go jump on your treadmill or go walk around a convention for, for a three-day weekend. I'm sure you'll guarantee you'll do five <laughs> or six kilometers just wandering the vendors. Um, so anywhere, anytime, anyhow. So that way people can just say, you know what, I, I, I can be a part of this. And, and it proves itself in the in the uh, the wide spectrum of our community. Kira, how did you get involved with this organization? They sort of farmed me a little bit. Um, I was at uh, one of the early Regen conventions in in Baltimore and met them uh, among the vendors. Uh, met the founder Brian uh, Brian Biggs, and sort of you know got a got an idea for how passionate he was about it. Um, specifically because it was a regen convention, they were representing the Whovian Running Club almost exclusively at that point. But I, you, know, you soon realize what what a larger kind of uh, fan reach they have. And I was talking with them about it and got involved, did a couple of events, you know, did a, did a half marathon run with them because I wanted the encouragement to do my first half marathon. And I wanted to do it actual. I wanted to get out there on the road, plot a map, and actually run out my 13.1 miles. Yeah. And it was, it was something. <laughs> it was a thing. Um, but I specifically, the reason, and I would never have taken a distance that long, but I was one of the ones that got attracted to the charity. It was supporting uh, a group called Canine Rescue that brings home service dogs from the Middle East who have been retired by the U.S. military. And at the point where a service dog in the U.S. military is considered retired, they go from being um, an active, uh, they are sort of recognized as uh, active military, and then the moment they're retired, they become a product. So... They don't have the the same means of uh, quarantining and bringing them back stateside or find – there's no way you're going to find any sort of a, uh, an adoptive home for them uh, in Saudi Arabia or something like that. So Canine Rescue actually covers all those costs to bring those dogs home and do whatever is necessary to place them in homes with um, – with retired military personnel or ones who are on uh, medical disability so that they have familiar training and they're dealing, uh, they're living in a household. They, they become an actual active household pet to someone who understands their conditioning. Wow. So yeah, it's a great group, great group. Um, so yeah, got involved with them, did a couple of events with them and offered my services at one point because a, a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the community is maintained by volunteers. It's a, 
an actual staff. Um, the, the organization has a whopping six people for this international organization, um, six staff members, and everybody else that helps maintain the communities and, uh, and the websites and, and volunteering at conventions to help, you know, uh, manning the booth and all those things. It's all volunteers. So I offered that service. And at some point, uh, not too long thereafter, I got a kind of a unusual, oh, I had, I, I had Brian on for a, for a podcast. I was doing another podcast at the time and, and had him on as a guest. Cause I, I was so interested in the, in the, the whole spirit of this community. I, I wanted to have him on and he was discussing it. You know, he actually came up since it's, uh, he's right here in Connecticut as well. He drove up and sat down in my, uh, in my living room and we, we did a, a one-on-one. Actually I had his, uh, his wife, Dawn, who is the chief creative officer. She designs all the medals, sat the two of them down. I'm just going through all the, all the, the, my interesting, oh, please tell me more about this, that, and the other. And by the time the conversation wrapped up and we're kind of just heading towards the door and things, he said, you know what? Um, keep your ear to the ground if you don't mind, because I'm, I'm looking for a communications director. Um, we're, we're growing much larger than, than we may be able to handle with the staff that we have on hand. And we're going to need somebody to help kind of, uh, help us establish the, 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 the foundation that allows us to, to stand much taller when when we go from being a couple thousand people to tens of thousands of people to who knows what the, the next step holds. I said, oh, well, sure, I'll, I'll think about it, uh, you know, who, I can, who I can talk to. Uh, I know a lot of folks within the, the, the marketing and advertising and social media space. And the moment they left, I turned around and <laughs> said to my wife, I'm like, wouldn't it be funny if I just told them that I'd be willing to do it? <laughs> and she said, well, you, you could do it. Um, it's, do you, do you want to, it's, it's going from working within the, the private sector, uh, for, a, for for-profit organizations to working for a nonprofit. And you, you know, you're going to see a little bit of a, of a, of a monetary shift there. And I said, yeah, but, but you're not going to be working for the man anymore. <laughs> uh, it's not, it's not like a soul crushing job. It's in, in fact, it's entirely the opposite. You'd be working with these people who are literally changing the world on a daily basis. So we thought about it and we talked about it for maybe about two weeks. And I shot a quick note back to Brian, thanking him for the, for the podcast interview, letting him know, you know, here's all the links. The, the episode is out. Feel free to spread the word on it and such. And by the way, you know, if you're, if you're still actively looking for that communications director, you know, feel free to, to give me the, the, uh, the particulars on the, on what the job requirements are. I'd love to see how they map to me. And I sent the email off and he called me in 15 minutes. <laughs> so, and it just snowballed from there. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. We had our, our annual holiday party uh, about a week or two ago uh, where we bring folks in from all over the world, uh, both participants and past charity partners and corporate partners that we've worked with. And we have a big party at a, at a ca- literally a castle uh, in Brantford, Connecticut, so they, they deck it out to look like Hogwarts and everything. And we have, have our usual kind of you know, big holiday gala thing. Um, but Brian makes a couple of statements um, before the, the whole festivity kicks off. And, and he kind of broke all of us because he was talking about what we've accomplished over the year and everything. And then he turns to the, the remaining five of us that are, the, that are the actual staff behind this organization. We're all sort of seated around these two tables. And he said, and it's not often that you get an opportunity uh, in your life to work with your best friends every single day <laughs> you bastard <laughs> this is supposed to be a happy occasion let's not bicker in ours yeah so then that's that's really what it's all about you know these are these are folks that uh, that 
change the world one mile at a time. So it's good stuff. Well, um, I had I had talked with you at several conventions about the project, and it had piqued my interest as someone who is not an an active um, physical exertion enthusiast. Um, <laughs> but I am a fan, and I do love a good charity. And so we had a nice chat about some of the the charities that we you you looked over and um, some of the medals and. Um, so last night, um, I decided that I was definitely going to take part. Um, I signed myself up for the good place. Uh, everything is 5K. And uh, I'm looking forward to starting my new year with that. Um, yeah. I love the fact that you, you, you know, you've got these themes like Harry Potter and you've got um, Doctor Who. And apparently there's an entire Gilmore Girls uh, mm-hmm. themed medals which i you know i got two of the references uh <laughs> thanks thanks to one of our previous guests from from 2019 but you also have a series uh it looks like uh, indi- individual tv shows um right and uh that seems like the good place is a part of that because we like tv shows you know there's a there's a lot out there and that's not just doctor who uh and speaking of which you know, you know whenever we get a guest onto the show even though we know you come from Doctor Who fandom, we know mm-hmm. that Doctor Who is not the end-all and be-all of your fandom. Uh, so why don't you tell us about the show that you want to talk about this month and, and why you chose it? We can go anywhere. Anywhere with the door, I think. My God. Since you found the key, has your life gotten better or worse? I need you to make me a promise. Not to tell anyone about the room or the key or anything else, all right? My little girl went into that motel room and she never came out. We're in this thing together all the way, whatever the hell this thing is. There are events in motion that are greater than you could understand. What happened in that motel room? If I show you what's there, there's no going back. It will make you crazy. Tell me you can bring her back. Tell me! What's happening now? This is where the world almost ends. A Sci-Fi Channel miniseries event. Peter Cressa, Juliana Margulies, The Lost Room. Well, uh, understanding the the premise of of this, uh, the the back half of of how this cast works, um, and wanting to to see, in some instances, it's just a matter of, of real appreciation of another series. But I think to a certain degree, I was looking at that as an opportunity to to hopefully find uh, those series or those bits of, uh, of content that are out there that someone may not have caught the first time it was offered, um, for, for whatever the, the reason is. Um, um, and then that immediately brings to mind with me that seething bit of resentment for those series which did not get their fair shake yeah, uh, or, or cut short. And obviously there there's loads of ones that people will be, their immediate mind will go to. I, I know you've had guests that have discussed Firefly and, and, yes. and mm-hmm. series of that sort that, you know, they needed more time. And I'm, I'm right with you on that. And, you know, s- secure me a little space on the top of that hill too. But there are other ones that literally just never got enough of an exposure uh, to even be given the uh, the the consideration for more time, um, either because they were relegated to a to a bad time slot, or um, or they just didn't have the, the production quality, or maybe they just didn't shake out some of those first season quirks 
that uh, that would that would give it uh, the 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 official blessing to say, you know what, I see where you're going with this, and I know it has the potential, so we're gonna we're gonna let it roll forward. Um, and the one that I think is is one of the the top uh, shoulda coulda wouldas would be the Lost Room from 2006. It was a at the time Sci-Fi Channel before it became Civi. Uh, it w- was one of their opportunities, uh, which has you know kind of a quirky little uh, development process as far as how it came to be and where the ideas stemmed from, but was given a very unusual release. Uh, it was like cut into three two-hour-long uh, blocks. Uh, so it was given a very mini-series feel when it then when it later released on you know, distributed media and, and so forth. They broke it up into into six uh, and just cut them in half. Found you know even breakpoints in the, in the acts to do so. But but you could immediately tell from maybe uh, well yeah episode one that there was so much more to this world that they could run with it for as long as the fans would have it. But they didn't draw enough fans. To, to give it the green light to go forward. And more is the pity, because it's it's huge. Well, it's four and a half hours of your life that you won't feel you've wasted. I 100% agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, um, I, I was doing a little bit of research after I finished the series. I, I, I'm a big, I don't like spoilers. And so, you know, you suggested this, and I just went in blind and just started mm-hmm. watching it, which is, I think, yeah, the I best too, way of yeah. doing it. Um, but I did read that the original pitch for the show was that it, <clears throat> from a production standpoint, they were going to release it in um, eight segments, six to eight segments, and it was going to immediately follow Battlestar Galactica, which was the Sci-Fi Channel's big show at that time. So this was right. going to originally get major audience support. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, instead, they released it in three two-hour miniseries, uh, which um, the, the commercial breaks are not not super great. Uh, in this, mm. I mean, it's designed around it, so you know it is. It, it does end on little mini cliffhangers every single time, yeah. but uh, certainly uh, the sci-fi did this program a disservice um, mm. in that sense. Um, so we we've talked about around it, but let's talk a little bit about it. Um, this is going to be difficult, but could you give an elevator pitch for for what this show is? Sure. So. Uh, if you only want to look at the season that aired, um, rather than describing the the entire universe they're trying to create, I guess you could just sort of handle it in either perspective. Uh, let me let me try to do the actually the inverse, so yeah, that yeah. it doesn't necessarily spoil uh, what Joe Miller, Detective Joe Miller, goes through. Um, you have a a series, um, a, a indeterminate number of physical objects that all originated from a. Uh, a hotel or motel room that no longer exists on this world. It literally the the room in which all of these objects originated cannot be found at the uh, at the motel. Uh, you know, this is room ten of a, of a building that if you go to it, there are nine rooms. Um, but all of these objects that originated from this now lost room all have some sort of strange. A manipulative ability upon this physical world um, that in some ways are absolutely unrelated to what the object physically is. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, and, and people have come into contact with these objects and either use them for personal gain or maybe are so fascinated by them and, and their, uh, their unusual um, abilities that they have cultish or cabal-like followings to try and track them all down and see what happens when you either possess them all or use them in combinations and things of that sort. And it becomes all-encompassing. Yeah, yeah, it's a good description of the room, uh, as the, yeah. the, the the overview of that. And of course, with the series one that we that we have, um, mm-hmm. we get Detective Joe Miller finds one of these, gets one of these objects in his possession, and gets further into this world. And and he's our point of view character, right? So we we right. are slowly untangling the mystery behind the lost room through mm-hmm. a detective's eyes, which I think was a really smart move because. Mm-hmm. When you have a limited number of episodes, getting through that descriptor, like, you know, if I were to find one of those things, it would probably just go in a box and would sit on my shelf. And it wouldn't be a very interesting show. But a detective, you know, they, they've given a reason for Miller to to actively search. And someone who, you know, he, he does some detective work. He does some actual detective work in there. And he, he seems mm-hmm. to be a capable and smart person. He makes those narrative leaps that uh, if he weren't a detective, you'd be like, how did he think of that? But as a detective, <laughs> you can go, right, this is the kind of guy who's used to putting t- connections together. So, right. Yeah. Gives him access to some additional resources, too. You know, there are times when he will utilize things like a fingerprint database or something right. of that sort that, that we just, you know, we, we couldn't in a, in a million years, you know, cajole our way into saying, would you mind looking up this fingerprint? <laughs> Maybe seeing what missing person this maps to. So, I mean, and it's got some star power behind it. You know, you've got uh, Peter Krause, who everybody would recognize from Six Feet Under. Uh, I think it's one of the reasons why it was, this was a, this you're talking about Netflix recommendations. This was one that came up to me uh, when I was physically getting discs uh, from, uh, from Netflix on, on the regular. And I would go and I think it was recommended to me because of my interest in things like, uh, well, six feet under. I had those discs coming to me pretty regularly, so there was obviously sort of the connected cast. Um, you have uh, Juliana Margulies from ER, um, which you know she's she's got a lot of uh, a lot of gravitas in that regard. Um, but it also, I think it was connected to me personally because I was also renting movies and series that had to do with um, complicated science fiction plot lines. You know, I wanted the the denser things. Uh, I don't remember how this mapped against the release of Lost. What, what years were was Lost on the air? Lost came out before this. I would I would bet because I started watching Lost in two thousand and I think it ended in around two thousand and nine, didn't it? Um, okay. To the internets and uh... right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but because of shows like Lost and Fringe uh, and those ones where they were definitely doing a bit of uh, not only really deep world building but also really reveling in the idea of posing more questions than it answers, um, which some viewers cannot stand, uh, and they immediately will label that you know, labyrinthine, or, or, or it's just being, it's be, it's being overly pedantic because it's giving you information that clearly they're never going to resolve this for you. Um, well, this could have. It just wasn't given the opportunity. Right. Yeah, just for a little so, bit of reference, uh, Lost came out two years before. So it came out in 2004. So it would have been kind of well into its third season when mm-hmm. this one was airing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, as, as we 
I didn't watch it when it first came out, but I knew that everyone was talking about it. So mm-hmm. uh, certainly this kind of, that kind of labyrinthine plot that that uh, the layers, the onion kind of show where there's layers upon layers upon layers would have been in vogue, uh, which would have worked. And this one actually reminded me a lot, um, both of Lost, but more of the first season of Heroes in mm. that, uh, you know, even the, you could see where if this show was going on for, you know, 23 episodes, you would get an, the item of the week kind of right. uh, episode where like, it's like, do we really need to do spend an entire episode learning about this one character? Oh no, wait, that's going to come back and actually mean something there. So that, I mean, it did a really good job where, um, you know, introduction to certain items are definitely going to have. Yeah. Cause there were, there were a lot of items and I don't know that it said in the actual show how many there were, but I watched the behind-the-scenes thing this morning, and the creator, one of the creators, said there were a hundred objects in the room. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it could have been object of the week for four or five years. Right. Yeah, Wally. When they're at the diner, Wally's like, "There's a, there's like at least two around a hundred, um, and mm-hmm. you know we we see, oof, probably twenty plus items, but we don't get descriptors of." Right. Many right. of them. I think we get less than a dozen. It it just dis- describes what they do. But to sort of back up a little bit for for people that are hearing about this program for the first time, we're talking about this manipulation of the of the physical world. Mm-hmm. Just to to give without spoiling anything, you can just say the, the object that Joe Miller comes into possession of is considered one of the most important because it is the key, the key to that hotel room or motel room, um, which sounds innocent enough, but the whole premise behind it is that that key is the only way that you can actually get into that room. So any tumbler lock that you put that key into, when that door opens, you can enter the room itself as it was frozen in time in 1970 or 1961. When you exit the room, you can exit to anywhere with a physical door that you can picture in your mind. So whether you've been there or not, if you can get a clear picture of it and you know physically where it's located, that's where you can exit to. So, which is an incredible premise, a full stop right there. Yeah, And it's Uh, the only item uh, to when your earlier statements, it is the only item that it's a key that opens doors. So it can open essentially any door that has that tumbler lock. Um, None of the items work in the same, in the same way that like their original purpose, like, you know, you have a key, it opens doors, and it takes you places. But, like, you know, the quarter doesn't do that, the scissors don't do that, you know, like, that <laughs> kind of a thing. It's it's definitely, um, it's surprising, because I think if I were writing a show like this, and I, as I'm watching, I'm going, where's this going? What, what, I think this is, oh, nope, that's definitely not what's happening. Oh, I mm-hmm. bet this is, oh, nope, that is definitely not what's happening. Which, that's, you know... If you know me and you know the kind of stuff I like, I want to be surprised. I want to have to think about it. And this is, yep. you know, like this premise set up in the first episode. I was like, oh, my God. I, <laughs> I have to work. I have to go to work. I don't want to go to work. I want to watch the show. <laughs> sleep. I don't want to sleep. Like, you know, the, I think I watched the first three episodes the first night and was like really upset that at like two in the morning I had to to go to sleep. And I wouldn't mm. be able to chance, get a chance to see it again for like, you know, 24 hours so. Have either of you spent any time thinking about what other objects could have been? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Because 
I, I do like the the fact that there is an aspect of the storytelling, the way that things unfold, where in some instances, they someone will talk to one of these collectors and say, oh, oh you mentioned the, the, the this object? Well, what does it do? And they'll flat out tell you um, because it's important to know in some, you know, some smash cut you're about to cut to somebody out in Dubuque who's actually using that object for nefarious purposes in the way that was just described. But in some cases, they'll talk about this object with reverence mm-hmm. and Joe or another character will say, well, what's, what does the object do? And you're not told right away, which just, you get salivating mm-hmm. at that point because you want to know, you know physically what the object is and now you just want to know exactly what it does. Or you get a description, like you mentioned the scissors and someone says, well, it turns things. Okay. <laughs> In what capacity? Um, you know, how many degrees, you know, on what plane. So it's, there's, there's, there's fun to that. Got it. Yeah. Oh, it rotates, right. It rotates. (laughs) Um, so that's, it's, it's, it's got a load of fun to it in that regard too. And then when they start getting to the point where they start combining objects and seeing what you can do, if you're arming yourself with, uh, you know, a, a couple of these, um, what the, what the combined power can really be. It's just, the, the the whole premise of it I think is is fascinating. So yeah. if you can if you can bear with the fact that it has a kind of a a, a 90s sci-fi series feel to it, uh, even though it was you know released in 2006, it has that kind of a X-Files sort of tone. Mm-hmm. Um then then this is your jam. Yeah, I I definitely think that, you know, for listeners who come to this podcast because they love Doctor Who, I don't think they're going to have a problem with the quality of it. You know, like it's, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely a low budget show. Um, it's got very good actors. The writing is spectacular, um, but visually it's not that impressive. Uh, but that's fine because, you know, we've been, we've been, uh, happy to deal with that for 50 plus <laughs> years. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's the way it, that runs. Um, this is one of those shows too, as I was watching it, you just kind of want to weep because you can tell that in the hands of a network um, that had a little bit more money or if they had a time machine and this had been written, uh, if they came out with, say, Series 2, and I do want to talk about Series 2, um, you know, next year on a major network or HBO or something like that, this is one of those programs that they could have teased out uh, those six first six episodes for two seasons because um, there's a lot they could have explored. This is one of those shows where I would have liked it to be a much slower burn, but by its very nature, you have to press forward because you had such a limited amount of time to kind of introduce the audience to, to the world building. But you know, you ha- that sh- this show hooked me uh, the moment someone walks into a pawn shop with a briefcase that actually unfolds into a small door. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what's going on, but I love this so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a, the, the, I think both of our co-creators, um, not only did they come to the table with some interesting ideas on what they wanted to execute, but they made such interesting decisions on how, how much information to give the viewer and how much teasing and taunting to give to the viewer uh, that, that that in and of itself just makes it that much more uh, consumable. It's a it's a program that that know that's very self aware as far as it, it is messing with the viewer yeah. and it is reveling in the fact that it's messing with you. 
and giving you more on your plate than you can handle, which I think makes it all the all the more uncomfortable knowing that it didn't get the opportunity to further the story. Yeah. Yeah, I was reading an interview with with the creators and their pitch for the future series is brilliant because the idea is that hey, you know what? This is not a show about Joe Miller. Season 1 is, but season 2 isn't going to be. You know, Joe Miller's story is probably done um and that we're going to move forward with this. Um Kira, are you a comic book guy? Yeah, I am, which is why when I had heard uh, at the in the in the sort of the years that followed this that because I had hoped one of two things was uh, was going to happen, either Lionsgate was going to hand over the opportunity for Dark Horse or some indie at the time uh, indie uh, comic publisher to to further the storyline or release a graphic novel or something that would allow us to be able to continue to play in that space. Or that somebody, and this may still be happening out there somewhere, would pick up the fanfic banner and run with it. Cool, good. I was going to ask you about that because I, you know, I finished it last night, so I haven't gotten a chance to to jump into that realm. But I am all there for Lost Room fanfic. Yeah, because I think, I mean, honestly, like, it's. I thought about this morning. I've I've been a part of a lot of uh, fan anthologies for charities. I, I, I would love to approach these folks. I don't even know how. I would like to do it with their blessing. But, like, I would love to approach these folks and just go, uh, we want to do a fan charity. You know, like, we're going to get 13, 14, 15, 20, 30, I don't know how many authors to just choose an item and mm-hmm. uh, to just write a short story about, like, someone's interaction with that item. I think that would right. be fabulous. I think a good editor would really put that together well. I'll bet they'd be pretty receptive to it because they seemed in all of the interviews, whether it be uh, in print or a couple of the you know, Comic-Con panels uh, and interviews that they've been on where they've discussed it sort of in retrospect because we're now, what, 13, 14 years yeah. since, that they're, they, they love the story. It just hasn't given, been given the opportunity to, to con- continue, um, but they, they want to see it happen I interpret whether it's in their hands or anyone else who shows reverence for it. So I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. So um, I guess we could go around the room and just say what you thought on your immediate first watch. Because, Kira, you said you you found it later on uh, in the Netflix DVDs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Probably about uh, maybe uh, it was probably like 2007 or, or, or early 2008 by the time it was – out on disc and, and sort of worked its way into the algorithm for recommendations to, to right. hit my hands. Yeah. So you were hooked on the first episode, I would assume? <laughs> Without, I think I see, I saw, um, I, I read the synopsis uh, for the disc set uh, when it offered to throw it into my queue. And I read a quick synopsis of it. I saw that it, that Peter Krause and Juliana Margulies were involved in it um, and said, okay, well, it's, it's got some credibility to it. Uh, I was huge on BSG at the time. So I had already seen maybe ads go by around it during BSG broadcast time. So it was already a little bit familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as soon as I saw the, the tone and and sort of the uh, – that uh, again, I mentioned the X-Files because that was my first real fandom, real immersive fandom uh, where I really geeked out news groups and everything else involved. And because it reminded me of that from the first – well, first 10 minutes, Drew, as you're talking about, you know, going yeah. into the pawn shop and opening up this unusual briefcase, I'm like, that's not 
right. And <laughs> and I want to know why. We're of so, a generation I, that loves a good glowing briefcase. Oh, yeah. 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 So, so yeah, that, that's... I, I knew from the first spin-up of the first episode that this was something that was that was worth investing a little bit of time, and then a little bit of time became six hours. <laughs> right. Well, I never heard of this show till you suggested it, so I went in totally blind like Drew did. And then I saw the picture on Prime Video. Uh, that's where it is if anybody wants to see it. Uh, and I saw Julianne Margulies' picture, and I was like, okay, good. Uh, and then we started it. My wife actually watched this one with me, and we both liked it. And I particularly liked it because it wasn't predictable at all, at least not to me, but it was also logically sound. And by that, I mean, like, in the first episode, you see the guy that everyone's chasing. He's using the key going into rooms. But he always shows back up locally. So when Joe first uses it, he ends up on an island. And I thought, well, maybe the other guy got where he wanted, where he needed to go, uh, you know, by thinking of it first. And then Joe immediately did that. And I was like, yes, this show is logically <laughs> sound. And and that you didn't have to wait four or five episodes for that to come out. You know, it was right there. And yeah. so it moved along at a really quick pace. Um, and the other thing that I noticed when it was coming on, one of the producers was uh, Richard Hatem. And uh, he did a show a long time ago that we loved called Miracles that had Skeet Ulrich in it. Okay. If if you haven't seen that, you should really check it out. It it was only one season, also, but it's it's really great. But this show, uh, it just the universe and the world that it created for itself. You were always waiting to see what the next object was and what it did, and all these different uh, cabals and groups and everything and what they were about. And like you said, this show could have gone on forever. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's, I'm 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 glad to see it back around now because it's one where it never completely loses it never drifts from memory because there may be you know a handful of series that i'll say you know given more time and this is always right up there along with well with firefly and uh, uh and carnival um are uh, because of the fact that you could tell that they had built a world that that needed more space just to entertain us i didn't even want closure i don't i don't want an answer i don't yeah. want to know what the what the event really was um, I don't want to know, you know, like these uh, the different cabals that think that either if you assemble them all, you can talk to God. And another group says if you assemble them all, you are God. And another group says if you assemble them all, you get a lifetime pass to Disney or whatever it is. The, <laughs> it, 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 I don't need that closure. I just want more time to play. Yeah, agreed. And I, I, I really appreciate a show that the answer to the big question doesn't necessarily get answered because it doesn't have to, but I only appreciate that when it's done well as opposed to done lazily. Like, you know, the first Tremors movie, we don't ever find out where the Graboids come from. I don't need to know where the Graboids come from. Um, I can just sit and enjoy that film. I don't need to know what the event is, is here. You know, it's it's uh, it's great. But I will say this, um, unlike many programs that get canceled after the first season, we don't suffer for the fact that we don't get a second season. Like, I mean, this does have some closure. Like, this could be considered complete. You, you, you're left with a lot more questions than, than answers. But mm -hmm. at least this story has a completion. Because what I was really afraid of is, I'm like, there's only six episodes of this. If they don't actually finish this particular storyline, you know, if they get they're getting ready to be continued in season two, I was going to be really disappointed. And, and you know, you, the world is not done. Um, but the story does, you know, and that's, and I guess that's a little bit of a spoiler, but I mean, I think it's, 
if I had, if you had told me right off the bat, don't worry, it's a, it's um, you know, uh, this is sort of in world, this is going to work out. Uh, I think I probably would have been a lot, little less stressed while watching it because I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I've been dis- I've been hurt so many times. Right. Um, this uh, reminds me of of a decent film. If you're watching a film that you know is not intended to be part of a series, uh, right. and it has some sort of really immersive thing, and at the close of it, you know, you get your denouement and everything makes sense for your characters. They either to to the good or to the ill. They're they're going to go off and have their their futures. And there's something in the way the right before the credits roll where you're told, you know, and perhaps there is more to the story, dear viewer, dear listener, but the rest mm-hmm. is up to you and yeah. roll credits. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So aside from the key, we can go around the room with this one. What item would you like to have? Oh, my gosh. Um, the the key, the idea of the of the the breaking down the barriers of location with the key is is pretty helpful. And, and I, I, I dig that. I, I can see, obviously, the inherent problems or, or the, the, the immediate desire to do something nefarious with that. But the bus ticket to me. <laughs> has this comedic nature to it that I love, um, and the, the execution uh, of the way of, of the of the the bus ticket holder. And I'm not going to spoil anything because it's the the the, <laughs> the way he manipulates it is fantastic. Um, yeah. Some sometimes for for self preservation. Sometimes just to be a bit of a jerk. <laughs> um, uh, is is it fair to to mention what the bus ticket does? I, mean, is this, I, I think is it, it, I think it's that's episode one, and I yeah. think it's it's yeah it's fine. Okay, so it shouldn't give it anyway. But the bus ticket has the ability that anyone who comes into physical skin contact with the bus ticket is immediately transported. Uh, apparently, at some point, like a couple dozen yards above the, sur- <laughs> the surface <laughs> of a of a little town in the middle of nowhere. And it has happened for so long over the course of the 30 some odd years since the event happened that the town in which all of these people find themselves dropped have started leaving notes to people saying, no, this isn't hell. This is, you know, such and such town. The bus station is that way. Yeah. And tell tell them how to get out of town so they don't have to keep answering questions from people that come wandering in. So it makes you wonder if that town's economy is solely based on bus ticket. Um, <laughs> they should they should have like a little uh, swag kiosk set up there saying you get your you know you know I I've visited you know what was it it was like it was a little town in New Mexico or something yeah um, I don't even remember what it was but yeah. it's just you know get it and all, I I got transported to this town and all I got was a bruised forehead and this lousy t-shirt yeah so. yeah but I, I love fe- the fact, I fell for Santa Fe yeah exactly <laughs> but I think the reason why that that amuses me is because it it could potentially be. Um, self-preservation, you know, it could be something mm-hmm. where if you need to get out of a situation, there's your exit. Right. Um, it's just gonna, it's gonna require getting the wind knocked out of you when you hit the ground. Um, or it's something that can, uh, that could potentially have a, a positive, uh, utilization to, um, getting somebody else out of a situation. All right. This is going to sting for a minute, but I'm going to get you out of here. Um, I don't know. I, th- I think it's quirky enough. It's weird enough that, that I think I, I dig it over any of the other objects that to me sounded like they could be potentially really harmful. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, there's some really, there's some deadly objects in this and I, I definitely, yeah. it's not something I would choose. And I think one of the things I really love about it, um, as someone who, who does a lot of really fun, I, I do a lot of role-playing games and I like to, 
you know, I know all my players really want to get super powerful weapons that'll help them fight monsters and stuff, but I love giving them these weird little utility items that are like, mm. you're going to come up with something really clever, and it's going to be so much more satisfying narratively for you as players uh, than if I gave you a weapon. And we get that, that, that same feeling, you know, like there's a, a comic series called um, Rising Stars by Straczynski. Um, and, uh, you know, the, one day this event happens and suddenly all these children are born at the exact same time um, and they all have these powers. And you don't really understand what in what context these powers occur until time moves forward a little bit more. Um, and it's like, oh, that what seemed like a really stupid power is actually really important for this event. Like there's a there's a reason behind everything. It's this huge sprawling story. Um, told in a way that only Straczynski stories can be told. Uh, and hmm. that really reminded me of that too. And, and I loved that the the bus ticket has a has a purpose. You know, like there's an actual reason and, and it's utilized creatively as opposed to just for comedic sake. Um so yeah, I wrote this question and I'm and I don't think I actually gave it any real thought. Um I think my go to is the quarter. Hmm. Um and uh I and, and I'm realizing like I don't I don't really want to explain why because if someone's watching it, the quarter is such a pivotal, pivotal moment in this thing. But um, uh, I have a fairly creative uh, imagination. I have a, a decent memory. I think the quarter could be really fun. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it can be one of those things that, that could be used, I think, creatively in multiple mm-hmm. purposes. As long as you have enough condiments at hand to wash it down <laughs> yeah 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 the, the um the i think one of my favorite aspects uh for for theory um about this show is how did they figure out and they, they mentioned this in the show how does someone come up with the idea of like this is how you activate one of the objects because you know there's <laughs> if you if you assume that they did like oh hey this works doing this with it let's do the same thing with all the other objects that is right. going to be painful uh, on many accounts. So, Brent, how about you? Right. I'd have to go for the comb. Yeah. Uh, although I wouldn't be a psycho lunatic with it like that guy was in the show, but uh, it could certainly get you out of some awkward situations, I'm sure. Yeah. It would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, and uh, again, I think this is not, not a huge spoiler. Um, I think one of the things that I really appreciate because, you know, there's always that, the the curse of coincidence in in television where it's like, yeah, I get it. If it wasn't for coincidence, we wouldn't have a story and there'd be no reason to watch the show. But sometimes coincidence can be taken too far. And the the understanding of how Joe Miller starts meeting all these different item-wielding people, um, their explanation in show is, is quite good. And I appreciate that fact, um, that, that they probably sat back and went... Wait, is this realistic? And I was like, no, of course it's not realistic. That's the whole point of this is not realistic. I was like, but but let's let's throw you know throw the audience a, a bone. Walking the line of plausibility in something this unusual mm-hmm. has got to be extremely difficult from a creator's perspective yeah. because you're going to get people that say, all right, I'm going to walk with you far enough for you to tell me that this little physical object has this very supernatural or paranormal or ultra uh, pseudoscientific ability, but in the way that you carry that out, you know, I'm, I'm going to walk with you far enough for you to tell me what it does, but when it starts doing it, I want you to adhere to physics 
and and hard science, which right, I, I can't I can't imagine where you draw that line. Well, I mean, I so I have only two complaints about this show. Um, uh, the first is that Peter Krause's voice sounds so much like Nathan Fillion that. Um, <laughs> It, I found it incredibly distracting in that first episode. I had to get used to it because I kept on going, how do I know that voice? How do I know that? Because I haven't watched Six Feet Under, and I, I don't think I'd oh. really seen anything. I know. it's. I'm sure someone eventually is going to come along the show and, and suggest that. I'm looking forward to that. Mm. Um, but it got to the point where I was just like, who, who am I hearing? Because it's definitely not this character. Um, and I had to look it up. And I was like, this guy must be do- This guy must be an animation voice actor. Nope. Uh, but I eventually figured it out, and and I, once I did, like the curse was sort of broken, but it it, it was distracting. And the second is, mm. um, uh, Margaret Cho has a character, um, in yeah. in this, which is a great character. It's really super helpful, um, for tying plot lines together, um, in, in that she is a dealer who deals in object location. The problem I have with this, and this is, I think, my only real big concern with the show is that. Enough time has passed that these objects make the people who have them uh, pretty powerful uh, in that, that they have organization. So it may be an individual is powerful, but the belief structure of a, an organization is pretty powerful. That that there are still objects even out and about um, that she would she would know where they are without the use of an object. I felt like it was a narrative shortcut because I feel like it's like, Hey, give me some money, and I'll tell you where this object is. I don't understand how like people aren't doing this constantly, um, mm. you know, because people are going to such extreme lengths to get objects uh, as as evidence in in the show. Um, the fact that you know she hasn't been held hostage, or you know, more people haven't been slaughtered to get some of this stuff, uh, is the only like I was I, I I'm trying to think of a way to to write around it and you can't in six episodes. Like I think they did a great job. She's perfect for the short time, but like if if the show expanded to more seasons and you know that she would be that character that you would see the most mm. often. I think she would be the one who shows up in season 2 and 3 and 4 um more so than anybody else in in a, in a not a crypt keeper kind of sense, but like um, you know, like every anthology series needs something and their location for us is of course the lost room. And that's a, a really perfect way of doing it. Right. So I think it'd be interesting to see also her character as the, um, as the interconnectedness and the, and the furthering, com- uh, computive, uh, power of the internet expands from 2006 forward to say 2010, you know, if it got four years to expand, think about how far we came. Um, yeah, in our ability seriously. to, yeah, for for the information share, for cloud computing, for the opportunity for all these things to be offloaded, so that you know, I could see by 2010, she's not, she's no longer in the in the dry cleaners shop. She's in some offshore, <laughs> you know, yacht thing off the off the coast of a, um, you know, Costa Rica or something, so that she can be in international waters, just manipulating this thing, chain smoking. That's true, but I do love the fact that that. Um, that dry cleaners is her mom's business. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, I love that she technically still works with her mom. Also, she's smoking near everyone's dry cleaning. And that's like the whole point <laughs> of it is you're like yeah. to get that smell out. She doesn't care. She doesn't care. Nope. And that is, I find, I found her really charming. I mean, actually, mm-hmm. I think for me, Wally was, was kind of the most charming character. I, I felt like he, he was really great and I really dug him, but yeah, she was also super cool. 
Yeah. Well, um, I feel like if we go any further, we're going to spoil it for everybody else. So um, before we wrap up, Kier, do you want to tell folks uh, where they can find you on the internet if you want to be found or of any kind of projects that you're working on that you want folks to know about? Absolutely. Well, the, the, the we, we've mentioned both of them at, at one point through here. So the two things that occupy most of my uh, non-family time, uh, which is very small, um, are either done. Uh, my nine to five uh, is obviously getting involved with the uh, uh, with my organization, Random Tuesday, who operate the Fanthropy Running Clubs. So if you're interested in either getting involved with something for your physical health or you want to do something a little philanthropic for the world uh, under some very, very... Uh, deep cut geeky pulls um, and we, we revel in the minutia because we're right there with you. Um, that's fanthropy.org. Um, and then obviously from the, from the podcasting perspective, as, as Drew mentioned, the other GPR <laughs> being Gallifrey <laughs> public radio. So you can find us uh, on any of your various podcast streams directly uh, or just head to gallifreypublicradio.com. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a lovely morning discussing a show that needs more discussion. It really does, yeah. Like I'm, I'm looking forward to maybe picking up a couple of copies of the DVD and putting it into people's hands. Um, well, this is... You also have the homework. That yeah. We need to go track down Christopher Leone and, uh, uh, and Laura Bachman and, and, and see if we can get the rights to, uh, to play in their sandbox for a little while. I mean, the beautiful thing about a charity anthology is because the money's going to charity, we don't actually have to, but like, I would much rather have their blessing than, uh, than start. But I think, you know, I think, forward. Yeah. I would love to get their forward. forward. No, you're, <laughs> you know what? You're right. So Kier, I know you got a lot on your plate, but we're definitely going to, uh, we're going to, we're going to talk about this a little bit more. <laughs> Look forward um, to it. Yeah. And thank you listeners for joining us on Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who & Company. Special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixelwho. Who & Company can be found on iheartradio.com and Spotify. Or you can download the show directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. Contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany. Support the show at patreon.com slash whoandcompany. Or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. Thanks, and see you next month. Um... <laughs> just got distracted by a deer that just crawled <laughs> came right up to my window it's just <laughs> looking in trying to trying to sing <laughs> sing here yeah, sing me a carol or move on there cupid <laughs> uh i like our new place um well <laughs> speaking of